Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is airing on Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. Hello everyone, it's Shannon, and I am back with you to share another author interview, and of course, to talk about the plethora of new books coming out this week. So, as always, we are going to start out with the interview. Today, you'll be hearing an interview that I conducted with author Stephanie Marie Thornton, and we're talking about her 2021 release, A Most Clever Girl. We talk a lot about historical fiction, the things that we learn, both from history and from fiction, um, a lot about the, the research process of creating history in a way that is both accurate and accessible to modern readers. And then, of course, I will tell you about new books. So, Let's move into the housekeeping information, and then we'll get started. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro Podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am here with author Stephanie Marie Thornton, and we are discussing her latest book, A Most Clever Girl, which will be released in the U.S. on September 14th. So, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I'm excited to be here. So, we are a little bit earlier than I usually record as far as close to publication, but that is okay. We can definitely give people, um, you know, a, a bit of a sneak preview, as, as it were. But can we start with just you giving listeners a little bit of an introduction to A Most Clever Girl and what they can expect when they read it? Absolutely. Um, a Most Clever Girl is uh, historical fiction, and it is focused on the life of Soviet spy um, Elizabeth Bentley. She was actually um, a nice girl from Connecticut who, uh, during World War II, started spying on America for Russia. Uh, and then as soon as our alliance with Russia unraveled uh, post-World War II, she turned her coat, went to the FBI, and informed on um, it was actually the largest Soviet spy ring in America at the time that she had been running. Um, and by informing on it, she brought down the uh, golden age of Soviet espionage in America. So uh, she's an intriguing character for sure. Wow. And this is someone that I actually never really knew about. Not that I am 
like any great historical scholar, but I did take, you know, several history classes in college and have read, you know, quite a bit about World War II and the time directly following it. Um, but this is something that I have never known. So I am really excited to delve into this book. Well, uh, I will say that uh, I'm also a history teacher and this will be my 17th year teaching. I've taught American history for years and I had also never heard of Elizabeth Bentley, which was shocking to me because she um, is closely intertwined with, for example, like the um, the Rosenberg case with Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Um, oh, and, yes. Yeah. So she her story has just kind of gone under the radar. Um, and part of that was because she was a female spy and people in the 50s didn't know what well, late 40s and early 50s because she testified for years. Um, she her story was just swept under the rug because the, people didn't believe her. Um, they didn't know what to do with a female spy. They called her hysterical and menopausal. They said that she was a liar. Um, when at the same time, uh, Whitaker Chambers, uh, his story very closely parallels Elizabeth Chamber or Elizabeth Bentley's. Um, and he spied on America for Russia. He turned his coat, went to the FBI. And he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, whereas Elizabeth, uh-huh. no one knows about her. Uh, so I just felt like her story needed to be told. Yes, I think that is one of my favorite things about historical fiction. Like not only do you read things that are really entertaining and compelling, but you can also sort of get a peek into parts of history that perhaps you know are not well known, and hopefully that can encourage people to actually dig a little deeper and, and understand parts of our history that we just aren't taught for, for whatever reason. Absolutely. Um, I often say that historical fiction is the closest thing that we get to a time machine. Uh, so, yes, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Uh, you know, the Cold War wasn't that long ago, but just being able to recognize that there are still parallels and people who lived back then or further back in time, we're not very different from ourselves. I feel like the Cold War is a piece of our history that at least I didn't get a ton of exposure to in school. You know, you talk about kind of the, like the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and the World Wars, and then it kind of touches, you know, um, this whole like Soviet conflict, but then you don't really go deep into it in the way that you do with with some other wars. And not that I want to spend a huge amount of time studying war necessarily, but I feel like, you know, there's so much that we learn from these conflicts and like why they happened and, and what would happen if they hadn't happened. And yet the Cold War is just sort of, I don't know, like a like a little blip on at least what I was taught, um, you know, when I was in school, like back in the nineties. Absolutely. Uh, I do my best when I'm teaching us history to get actually all the way to nine 11, because I feel like, as you said, students get a 
ton on the American Revolution. My daughter is going into high school and she's like, Mom, if I have to learn about the American Revolution one more time. <laughs> lots of stuff, lots of stuff in high school, I promise. Uh, but I feel like the more recent history um, resonates with students because they can see more direct impacts to their lives. Um, so, for example, the Cold War, that's America becoming well, we already were, but um, really a world power, because after World War II, there were only two countries left on the stage, the U.S. Right. and the USSR. Um, the interesting thing about Elizabeth Bentley is she was willing to, um, you know, go against the USSR, uh, which was a pretty dangerous move. Um, she actually ended up on um, it would be the modern day equivalent of the KGB um, hit lists. They had plans to liquidate her. Um, so the, the fact that she she was playing one end and then switched to the other, that I I would make a terrible spy. Uh, but uh, the whole danger thing is fun to read about, but maybe not to live. Um, so trying to put myself in her shoes when she did that um, was pretty crazy. So I'm blind and have been since birth. And so I always would say, you know, like when I would read these historical novels um, about people that spy during the war, that like I that would be a role that I would just never fill like I don't think there such thing as a blind spy <laughs> I'm trying to think of one and I, I can't think of off the top of my head <laughs> no I suppose not although um there are two great novels out uh, for anybody who's interested in spy stories. Um, the Alice Network uh, by Kate Quinn features um, a spy who has a stutter and never thought that she would make a spy because it would single her out. But she ended up being this amazing spy. And then um, there's another uh, book, The Invisible Woman by Erin. Yes. Um, and that's on Virginia Hall. And she um, actually had um, a prosthetic leg. Um, so sometimes, you know, things surprise us. And who knows? <laughs> That um, I read both the Alice Network and the Invisible Woman. In fact, Erica Roebuck was on the podcast earlier this year um, when she was promoting it. And both of them, I thought, were, were very, very well done, you know, well drawn studies of, of these characters who, for various reasons, didn't fit sort of the stereotypical definition of like who a spy was and wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I was actually able to listen to a former CIA agent give um, a talk on who makes a good spy. Uh, and, you know, when I hear the word spy, I immediately think, you know, James Bond, et cetera. Um, oh, yes. That reaction. Um, and he said, yeah, it's the exact opposite. You want the person who's the the least likely to stand out, the most boring. Um, and when it comes to spy work it's it's definitely not high speed chases and uh all of that although there are lots of cool gadgets and things like that and i i still feel like every day for a spy was walking the knife's edge of danger because if you're exposed then everything comes tumbling down uh yes and you are very likely then to end up dead right right that kind of stress in my life i just don't need that but i do love to read about it and i really enjoyed writing about it <laughs> there are a lot of things that i really enjoy reading about that i don't actually you know want to do um since covid hit i have been a bit of a fan of like apocalyptic novels and 
like I read about zombies a lot these days <laughs> and I don't really want, you know, any zombies to come, but they, they do make for, for good reading, especially when I need something that can kind of remind me that there are things in the world that you know could be worse than COVID. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Emily St. John Mandel's uh, Station Eleven. And that, ah, yes. that's, I would say, post-apocalyptic with this terrible yes. And it was riveting to read, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's just a lot of that that is very good to read, but not so good to actually deal with in real life. Exactly. I feel like when we talk about spies, like we can either talk about sort of the historical spy, like what you're writing about here, or sort of that like mythical, almost like modern day spy that you see in like, you know, spy thrillers. Um, and spy thrillers are not necessarily my favorite but I definitely can get into like historical fiction that's set around spying. So, you know, things like, um, you know, like resistance work during World War II or, you know, code breakers and all of that. But there's something about those sort of high action, um, thriller type spy books that I, I just can't, I can't quite delve into in the same way. I love the, historical fiction aspect because I really enjoy learning about real people's lives um, and even books that are just based on, you know, a particular spy network or anything like that. Um, because I think that there's a lot of, you don't necessarily want to call it everyday heroism because, you know, wars are definitely not an everyday event, but the fact that everyday people were willing to stand up um, and do these amazing things um, perform these amazing feats of heroism for their country for what was right and then oftentimes just fade back into the woodwork um, and uh, you know let the, the world keep on going and maybe not even recognize the work that they had done um, I, I feel like a, a really good book can bring those stories to light um, and give them the, the spotlight that they deserve so when you were writing this book, like because this is not a person who is necessarily like well known just in like the everyday, you know, person like mind, what was your research process like for this? Like were you able to find information that was helpful to you or like how how did you navigate that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So um I, I stumbled upon Elizabeth Bentley doing a Google search um, because I, I thought, you know, the Cold War would be a really riveting time period to write about. I had just finished up uh, writing, and they called it Camelot, about Jackie Kennedy, um, and of course her story spans into those years as well. Um, and then I thought, you know, the Cold War seems like it would be a period just rife with spies because there are so many books right now um, on World War II and those spies, and I thought that there had to be spies on both sides, Russian and American. Um, and Elizabeth Bentley ends up straddling both of those time periods. Um, so then I was able to track down, there are a couple of biographies written about her, um, which gave me um, a, a pretty solid handle on her story, but not necessarily on her personality. Um, she's kind of a, a prickly character because uh, she, of course, turns her coat. Um, and then after she is informing for the FBI, um, they 
were able to corroborate what she had testified about. Um, there was a top secret project called Project Venona. Um, and others books written about that, uh, and I was able to track those down. Um, and Project Venona wasn't declassified until 1995, uh, but it was essentially a project where America had decrypted Russian cables, and so we were able to um, crack their code, essentially. Um, and when they had that and Elizabeth's testimony, they were able to really start putting together the jigsaw puzzle and naming names and figuring out, okay, this code name that we got from Venona is actually this person because Elizabeth told us and the stories match up. Um, so uh, they knew that she was telling the truth, but no one else knew. And the FBI couldn't come clean about Project Venona because they were still using it to spy on Russia, who is now our enemy, um, or to decrypt their cables, I should say. Um, so Elizabeth, um, her testimony is all recorded. I was able to um, get transcripts of her testimony. Um, and then she also went about writing her own autobiography, uh, which you would think would be this page turner thriller kind of story. Um, it's it's not. Um, it's a little bit more um, just like here are the facts. Um, and she oh, okay. that she's casting herself, I wouldn't say necessarily as like the, the stereotypical 1950s housewife, um, because she wasn't married, she didn't have children, um, although she did have a grand romance in her life. Um, but she she was trying to kind of backpedal because um, when she went on the stand, she had no evidence of anything um, because she was a great spy and spies who are good at their job don't keep any evidence. Everything gets destroyed. Um, she had a great memory, though. And so she was able to go on the stand and say all of these things, um, but she was under a lot of pressure to perform. Uh, so her early testimony is very factual, and we can now corroborate that with Project Venona. Um, but then the FBI said, we, we need guilty verdicts. You're, you're, you know, here, and we didn't put you in jail because we want to catch all of these other people that you informed on. Um, but in the court system, it's pretty difficult when you don't have any physical evidence. Uh, so she did start, um, I would say, elaborating um, and falling back on some hearsay and things like that. And interestingly enough, um, that was actually what helped lead to um, the conviction of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for um, ferrying atomic weaponry secrets to the USSR. So her story is... Um, prickly, for, for lack of a better term, because I had to try to tease out exactly where she was telling the truth, um, exactly where she got a little creative with the truth. Uh, so uh, a lot of that came out in the research and then some of it, um, I wouldn't say I took creative license, but I had to fill in some gaps as well. So as to her motivations for why she did those things. So I'm curious to know, you know, in writing, writing. a character like this, how was it for you to kind of make her at least to some degree sympathetic so that readers, you know, wouldn't just like read this book and like hate this person? Absolutely. Um, that was one of my, my big questions, especially in um, the early chapters in her early years. Um, how does this admittedly like just nice all American girl from Connecticut? Um, she was uh, highly educated, um, had actually traveled to Italy, um, and seen Mussolini's regime, how does she come back to America and fall in with the communists and then become a spy? And why would she spy on her own country? Um, what I teased out from the research and from her autobiography um, was that she was pretty lonely. Um, she was the, the daughter of essentially like an itinerant salesman, never stuck around in one place for very long. Um, her parents both pass away when she's pretty young. Uh, and she, 
she kind of just flitted from job to job. This was during the, the Great Depression and uh, life was pretty difficult. Um, and as I mentioned, she went to Italy um, during her um, master's degree and saw that fascism was really, really a terrible option politically at the time. So when she came back to America um, at the time, the exact opposite of fascism, even today, if you look at the political spectrum, is communism. Um, so she was very much anti-fascist, didn't want someone like Mussolini or Hitler um, or Franco uh, coming to power in America. Um, and okay. she, yeah, uh, she ended up <laughs> finding a friend uh, who just happened to be in with the communists, one of the, the members of the, the communist party at the time. Um, and I think her, her hopes for America and her, a lot of people would look at her decision to join the Communist Party and say, that's the most un-American thing you could do at the time. But if you're, I don't want there to be a Hitler, it kind of starts to make sense. Okay, well, she's, she's on the opposite end of the spectrum. I think we can all agree that having a Hitler in charge of America would have been catastrophic. And a lot of countries were going that route at the time. Um, plus, uh, her friendship uh, with this other woman, um, Lee, ends up being um, a catalyst for she found somewhere that she belonged and she found, uh, according to her autobiography, when she joined the Communist Party, that this woman, she had been called a sad sack when she went to college. She just she had a difficult time making friends. Now, suddenly she discovered in the Communist Party that she was actually really good at things that a lot of other people didn't want to do um, when it came to like organization and writing and things like that. Um, and then she met. Um, a man who became her future handler, um, who introduced her to his entire spy network and who she ended up taking over for um, and became romantically involved with him. And I think that was the clincher. Um, once she fell in love with um, Jacob Golos, uh, there was really no turning back for her. Um, and throughout it all, she was in it again through her own brand of patriotism. So she was really frustrated, um, as were a lot of Americans, when um, America didn't declare war in 1939 against Germany, but instead we dragged our heels and waited until Pearl Harbor um, in 1941. So she was really frustrated that we weren't doing anything to stop fascism in its tracks. Um, and then from her autobiography, I think she felt really vindicated um, when America um, jumped in, um, and even a little bit prior to that, um, when the USSR declared war um, on Germany, she wrote that there was just an outpouring of support from America, people lining up at this shipping company that she worked at uh, to just send Russians everything from food and medicine to guns, like anything that they could send that way, um, because there were a lot of Americans who wanted America to do the right thing and stand up to Hitler and fascism and all of that. So... So I think her her motivations uh, were different than what many people maybe at the time would have chosen. But I think once you get inside her head, you can see, OK, this is why she's making the choices that they did, that she did. And even if you don't agree with them, they start to make sense and they are um, sympathetic. She wanted to do what was right for her country. And I think that is an important sort of piece of the puzzle to really understand why someone does what they do, even if it's something that you don't like or agree with. I think as long as we can sort of understand what brought someone to a specific point, it does make it easier to sort of, you know, have their have their story resonate with you. 
100 percent. Um, and as I was writing, I, I think that most Americans today can look at um, our current political situation and agree that we are a pretty polarized nation right now. Um, you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. uh, I, I wish that maybe more people were willing to, instead of just, you know, firing off that Facebook comment or what have you, pause for a second. And, you know, there are lessons to be learned from history. So if Elizabeth's story taught me anything, it was, wait, okay, pause. Because whatever that person on the opposite end of the spectrum is saying, if you asked them, do you think you're a good American? Do you think that your beliefs are what's best for America? I think most Americans would say, yes, I want what's best for my country. So trying to see where that person is coming from and understand, okay, why why do they think the things that they think? Why are they saying the things that they're saying? Again, as opposed to just firing off with, no, you're wrong. Um, how did they get to that point? And, you know, is there is there a way that maybe we can take a tiny baby step closer to understanding and empathizing with each other. I think that could go a long way. (laughs) Is there anything um, that you sort of struggled with as you wrote this? Um, I did struggle a little uh, with some of Elizabeth Bentley's early decisions. Um, I had to work really hard to get inside of her head. Um, and that was actually what birthed uh, the the second point of view uh, in the book, which uh, her name is Catherine. Um, and she shows up at Elizabeth Bentley's house on a bit of a mission, um, not happy with Elizabeth Bentley. And um, she ended up being, I don't want to say Elizabeth Bentley's conscience, but kind of that voice um, that probably mirrors some of the, the questions um, that a reader might have like, well, why did you do that? Um, and then also being able to call Elizabeth out, because as I mentioned, she she did get creative with the truth um, at some moments. So having somebody who could say, wait, 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 that's not how that happened. So roll back the tape and tell me the truth and also tell me why the heck you did the things that you did. Uh, so I, I hope that that helps the reader get um, a, a more robust picture of Elizabeth and uh, her choices and her motivations. Yeah, I feel like sometimes seeing somebody through the lens of someone else can sort of shine that light a little differently. Um, You know, when we're simply inside the head of the character, sometimes it doesn't feel as as clear as like actually having someone else to sort of bounce that off of. Um, and I think, you know, a separate point of view can can do that really well. Yes, definitely. Um, I love books that have multiple points of view because you have that opportunity to to see a character, you know, just a different facet uh, that they wouldn't necessarily have commented on about themselves. Um, and that, I think, was necessary with Elizabeth's story because it is definitely a unique story. So can you tell listeners anything about what's next for you now that we are close to the publication of A Most Clever Girl? Uh, So for my next book, I'm actually shifting gears a little bit, it looks like, uh, and jumping to the 18th and 19th century. So uh, all of my books focus on um, famous women from history. So um, I'm looking at um, a mother-daughter story that actually spans the the French Revolution and also the Regency period. So um, like I said, the whole um, 
historical fiction as a, a time machine thing is really appealing to me because then I get to, to experience different eras. Uh, so that's a lot of fun on the research end. There are just so many women that have done things, you know, historically that either we don't know about or that have been attributed to men. And I love that so many authors now are actually trying to peel back those layers and really unearth the truth about a lot of what went on in history that perhaps, you know, we don't know the, the full story of. I sometimes have people who will ask, well, how long do you think you'll you'll keep writing? And I, I respond, you know, my my whole gig, my jam is writing these forgotten women's stories or stories that we think we know. But when you dig a little bit deeper, uh, actually, here's how things actually went down. Um, and yeah, there are so many of those women's stories throughout history that I, I feel like I could keep writing as long as I want to. <laughs> Do you have a, a favorite character that you have written over the years? Oh, I have um, a handful. Uh, the the character that I really loved writing the most was probably Alice Roosevelt uh, from American Princess. Um, ah, yes. Yeah, she, I mean, she was a firecracker and she lived to be 96 and she knew anyone who was everyone in DC. But the thing that I most loved about her was most of us filter <laughs> things that we think about other people. Um, Hopefully. And she, yeah, she did not. Um, and she was in a position where she could get away with that. Um, and she was just so witty. Um, the, the zingers that came out of her mouth um, and they were generally directed at politicians who I feel like are kind of fair game. Um, and she was related to a number of them too. So maybe that gave her extra access as well. Um, but yeah, that, that was just a hoot to write her. If, uh, you know, there's that perennial question of who would you invite to uh, a dinner if you could pick anyone from history and Alice Roosevelt would be at the top of my list because I, I feel like I would be wildly entertained throughout the, the entire dinner. <laughs> And again, you know, she's someone that you don't really know a lot about just looking at sort of the basic history that we're taught as, as Americans. You know, she's just like, I didn't know about her. What I have found is people who uh, lived either in New York, because, uh, of course, that's the Roosevelt Enclave, or in D.C., um, during, you know, during her tenure, um, she was called the other Washington Monument because she was such a fixture in Washington, D.C. They know about her, um, but otherwise not so much. And she passed away in 1980. Um, so I, I felt like her story was also starting to gather dust. But uh, any woman who knew all of the presidents from McKinley to Carter, um, that that's pretty impressive to me. So uh, and, you know, she was also very close with the Kennedys, which was the next book I ended up writing. So um, pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, there's all that kind of mingling of of people throughout history. And like this person, you know, is connected to this other person who knew about, you know, this thing that happened that the rest of us don't know about. And my sort of Midwestern um, education did not really touch on on her at all. Yeah, uh, I actually stumbled upon her story. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. with a group of students, and my daughter was extremely young at the time, and there was a, a picture book called Mind Your Manners, Alice Roosevelt. Um, and <laughs> I've always been a big fan of Theodore Roosevelt, so I thought, oh, well, that's his daughter, so let's see what this is about. 
Um, and it was uh, an adorable little book. Um, we still have it. Uh, about Alice's escapades when her father first took office uh, because she was 16 at the time and very much a wild child who uh, was her own person and was going to do things the way that she wanted, even if they completely contradicted the, <laughs> the accepted box that uh, girls and women were supposed to stay in at the time. So she broke just about every rule there was out there and was really ahead of her time. So I just love her. So shifting gears a little bit here, I get to ask you my very favorite question now, because authors are nothing if not like fountains of great book recommendations. What have you read recently that you think the world should know about? Oh, so many books. Uh, Yay. Since I'm a teacher, I, I just gorge myself on reading every summer. Um, Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles. I have no idea why I waited this long to read this book. It's been on my shelf since it came out. I read Circe and loved it, but uh, I just finished that one, um, which is, of course, a recounting of uh, the Trojan War and the Iliad um, and absolutely loved it. She is just such a wordsmith. And that book is all the feels. I think it made me cry and laugh out loud and everything in between. Uh, and right now, um, it's not historical fiction, but I'm just loving it. Um, I'm listening to, with my family, um, The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley, uh, which uh, I have actually um, been on panels with Stephen Rowley um, about the Kennedys, because he also wrote the editor um, about Jackie Kennedy's time as an editor. Um, but the gunkle is just, it's again, all the feels. So um, those are my, my top two right now. Excellent. And you um, have had several of your books done in audio. Are you involved in that process at all? Um, I actually, at this point, all of my books have been uh, turned into audio um, and I, I've never read for them, um, but I do get to listen to the narrator before they start and make sure that, yep, yep, I think that person's voice fits in with the character. Um, and then I usually, um, especially with my first four books, because they are um, ancient history, so everything from um, ancient Egypt to Genghis Khan's empire, um, some of them have some tricky pronunciations. So I'll oftentimes get um, a memo from uh, the, the editor who's working on the project who uh, could you record a voice memo and send us uh, the pronunciations for these? So, um, yeah, they're, they're lots of fun. And I am recently rediscovering my love of audiobooks. So it's great. Audiobooks hobby. are amazing, like not only from an accessibility standpoint, as someone who does not read standard print, um, audio has been, especially commercially available audio, has been just a, a game changer in the way I read. Um, growing up, I received books through the mail from the National Library Service, but anything that was published, you know, it took them forever and ever and ever to record it. Um, so, you know, something like, say, a, a Nora Roberts book that everyone else would be reading, I might get in, you know, a year and a half. And so commercial audio has, you know, just made that so much easier as has the you know, sort of advent of like ebooks um and, and i love that even people who who do read print who can access books in that way are finding finding joy and use in audiobooks because the more 
the more you read them, the more I can continue to read them <laughs> because people will keep making them. Right. Uh, it, yeah. And a lot of them drop the same day that the book comes out in print now, which is fantastic. Yes. I'm yes. all for anything that um, gets more people reading. Um, you know, I, I've got Stephen Rowley's book going right now, but that's that's my in the car book with the family. And then I've got my other books going uh, at different times. So um, it, it's allowed me to to add in another book option. So I think that's great for everyone. I feel like reading is one of those things that people, you know, sometimes want to put limits on, like what is and isn't reading. Um, you know, there's this constant thing of like, if you're listening to an audiobook, is that really reading? And I, I get really tired of seeing these conversations in book groups, you know, that say like, oh, well, if I'm doing a reading challenge, you know, do audiobooks count? It's like, well, yes. of course they count. Books are our books. <laughs> exactly. I have students uh, and friends who have commented the same exact question. Uh, and my answer is always yes. Yes. The, the glorious thing about reading is that it transports us to, you know, someone else's life, a different world, whatever the case may be. Um, we get transported and audiobooks do the exact same thing. And it's the exact same story. So whether you're listening to it or reading the words on a page, you're reading a book. And it's a wonderful thing. It is. It is. And as long as people keep doing it, there'll be more and more and more books to read. And that is just how I like it. Yep. Me too. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your pre-release schedule to chat with me about A Most Clever Girl. It will be available in the U.S. Um on September 14th, I usually try to read a book before I talk to an author, um, but your audio copy is not done yet. That so, <laughs> but very soon. Yes. Yes. I figured that it would probably be, um, be available like, you know, in, in mid August as, as an advanced copy. Um, so I do apologize for talking to you today about a book that I haven't read. <laughs> No, thanks for having me and uh, having me uh, before publication, because once school starts next week, uh, my schedule gets a little bit tight. <laughs> I would imagine that it would be hard to do something like this, especially if um, you're going back to work like in person, you know, and not doing um, the, the virtual stuff so much. Yep, I will be in person. Um, so, yeah, uh, <laughs> things get busy once once I'm juggling my author life and my teacher life. So thank you. Well, good luck to you. And, and I hope that you stay safe as you sort of reenter the, the world of, of school. Thank you. Yes. We're, we're all keeping our fingers crossed for a nice, smooth school year. All right. So I had a lot of fun going through and looking for all the things that I wanted to talk about today for our um, new books portion of the episode. I feel like some weeks I struggle to find enough books to talk about, and this week I struggled to kind of pare it down into a manageable number. So we are going to start out with a few books that we've talked about before on our most anticipated releases of March episode, also known as the March Extravaganza. 
So the first two books I'm going to mention were a couple that Melissa picked. Um, and we start out with The Golden Couple by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen. We then move on to The Darkest Place, which is the fifth book in Philip Margolin's Robin Lockwood series. So both of those are Melissa's picks. I am also looking forward to the Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen release, as are Brooke and Natalia. Then we have a couple of books that Sarah is very excited about. First up is Crowbones, World of the Others, book three by Anne Bishop. And so many of us here at Book Bistro love the others. So this one um, is one that a bunch of us are looking forward to. And then Sarah also mentioned The Sweet Spot, which is the second book in Trish Doler's Beck Sisters series. All right. So I want to move on now to some books that you haven't heard us discuss. And I'm going to start with some historical fiction. So there's a book coming out in both ebook and paperback, and this is Daughters of the Deer. It's by Danielle Daniel, and it is a historical novel about an Algonquin woman who was supposed to marry in order to help her people form an alliance with friend with France against the British. Um, I'm super interested in this. A friend of mine told me about it. I love those historical novels that explore things that aren't just, you know, British royalty or the Western parts of the United States. So this is definitely one that I'm looking forward to. It is Daughter of the Deer, and it's by Danielle Daniel. We also have Booth by Karen Joy Fowler, and this is an author that I remember best for her novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which was kind of a family drama about a family who decided to raise a chimpanzee alongside their children. This is a total departure for Fowler because it's kind of a family saga of the Booth family as in John Wilkes Booth, who was responsible for assassinating Abraham Lincoln. So this is Booth by Karen Joy Fowler. We also have Angels of the Pacific. This is by Elise Hooper. I read Fast Girls, which was either 2019 or 2020 um, Hooper release about female athletes in the 1936 Olympics. But this is a World War II novel about Filipina nurses who were held prisoner during the Second World War. So this is Angels of the Pacific. And again, it's by Elise Hooper. Next up is a book by four authors. This is Great or Nothing. It is by Joy McCullough, Caroline Tung Richman, Tess Sharp, and Jessica Spotswood. So this is a retelling of Little Women set during 
again, World War II, like 1943, I believe is when it starts. It looks as though each of these authors writes the point of view of one of the sisters. Um, I loved Little Women as a child, and I've been really fascinated by all of the ways in which people are reimagining it um, and bringing it kind of to life again for modern readers. So if you love Little Women, you might want to check this one out. It is Great or Nothing, and it is by Joy McCullough, Caroline Tongue Richmond, Tess Sharp, and Jessica Spotswood. Then, still hanging out briefly here in the historical land, I want to mention a historical mystery. So Kerrigan Byrne is best known for her historical romances, but that's not all she writes. She also does a series of mysteries. The first one came out in either 2020 or 2021. This is the second one. It's A Treacherous Trade. It's Fiona Mahoney Mystery Book Two. The first one is called The Business of Blood, and I am super excited to read that one and then this one. Um, I had thought about reading The Business of Blood when it first came out, and I was like, oh, but you know, it looks like it's going to be a series, and then I might have to wait a while for it to come out. So now I have two that I'll be reading, and that is an amazing thing because um, I am not always the best at waiting patiently. So this is A Treacherous Trade. Fiona Mahoney Mystery, book two, by Kerrigan Byrne. Then we have some historical romance. This is I Want You to Want Me, Survivors, number 12, by Shanna Galen. And I have read the first three books in this series, and I love them all so much, especially the second book. Um, the fourth one is currently on hold for me at the public library, so I'm not current, but I've read enough of this author's writing to know that her books are always fun and sexy, but also like kind of take a look at some deeper issues in a way that I think a lot of historical romance does so well. So this is I Want You to Want Me, Survivors, number 12, by Shanna Galen. All right, so let's hang out here with a romance, but move into some contemporary to talk about If You Ask Me by Libby Hubsher. She wrote oh, Meet Me in Paradise um, was her first novel, but this one is about an advice columnist and all the questions that she gets asked and how they kind of force her to re-examine her own life and her own relationships, it looks like it'll be that really nice blend of romance and women's fiction that a bunch of us really love. So this is If You Ask Me by Libby Hubsher. Then we have All That's Left in the World. This is by Eric J. Brown, and this is a queer post-apocalyptic adventure romance. Now, I have become pretty fond of post-apocalyptic fiction over the past few years, so I am very excited about this. I think it's especially awesome to see some queer books in this genre because we don't see a lot of it. And I think, like in all things, you know, it's just not about, like, cis, straight, 
people all the time. So I'm glad that this is coming out, and I definitely plan to read it. It is All That's Left in the World by Eric J. Brown. We then have Love Decoded by Jennifer Yen. This is about a high school junior who wants her friends to find love. And so she decides that she's going to help them. Of course, as is often the case when someone decides something like this, it does not go as planned. This is Love Decoded by Jennifer Yen. So this next book isn't necessarily romance. Um, it's kind of romance adjacent in the sense that Molly Harper always includes some romantic elements in her novels. And so many of my, my team love Molly Harper. Um, I cannot hop on the Molly Harper train. It just doesn't work for me. But I know that I am in the minority here. But this is Calling Sorcery and Society, book two, book three by Molly Harper. And I remember Kristen talked about the first book in this series a couple of years ago, I think when we did a, like a, a school episode, maybe. Um, but a lot of people have talked about her Jane Jameson series, um, her Half Moon Hollow books. So if you're a fan of Molly Harper, you're probably ready for this. It is Calling Sorcery and Society, book three. Now, let's move on to some kind of general fiction, I guess, is going to be the best way to describe it. It doesn't really, f these next few things don't really fit neatly into specific categories. So we have Smile and Look Pretty by Amanda Pellegrino. This is being billed as 9 to 5 for the Instagram age. And it basically wonders what happens when four women who work as assistants finally stand up and say enough is enough. It's Smile and Look Pretty by Amanda Pellegrino. We also have These Numbered Days. This is by Anna E. Collins. It's about a woman who left her children eight years before our story starts. Um, she was dealing with some mental health difficulties at the time. She obviously loved them but was unable to care for them so she left them with a family member eight years later she is doing better and is wanting to make a fresh start but isn't really sure she can this is called these numbered days and it's by anna e collins we then have the good women of safe harbor by bobby french this is about a woman who is nearing the end of her life and as she gets closer and closer to that end, she feels the need to return home, not just to the town that raised her, but to a friendship that has sustained her for a long time, but from which she has been separated. Um, this looks like a love letter to kind of our lifelong best friends. This is The Good Women of Safe Harbor, and it's by Bobby French. Then we have The Truth About White Lies. Now, this I am super excited for. In fact, it should be popping into my um, Libby bookshelf really soon because I put it on hold and I was fortunate to be like the first one. So 
the truth about white lies. This is basically an examination of what it means to be white and the ways in which we are and aren't complicit in racism. It's set at a school, um, as so many things are, and our main character is struggling to come to terms with her family's part in white supremacy. So this is The Truth About White Lies by Olivia A. Cole. Then we're going to talk about mysteries because why not? There are a ton of really great mysteries and thrillers out this week. And the first one of those is a very nice kind of segue from the last book I talked about because it's also a school book. This is The World Cannot Give by Tara Isabella Burton. She wrote her first novel, which was called Social Creature, um, I believe in like 2018. So this is her new one. And it is also set at a school, as I said, but it basically is looking at queer desire and religious zealotry, also kind of a coming of age story, but with a mystery at its core. This is The World Cannot Give by Tara Isabella Burton. We also have Daughter by Kate McLaughlin, and this is the story of one woman who's trying to make some things right, some things that really aren't hers to make right in the first place, but for some reason she feels responsible for doing this. This is Daughter by Kate McLaughlin. If you like books on the run, this next one should appeal to you. This is Scarlet and Blue by Jennifer Murphy. It's about a mother and daughter who have been on the run for most of the daughter's life. Now they're settling in a small town in Michigan, yay, where they are hoping to finally put their fugitive past to rest. This is Scarlet and Blue by Jennifer Murphy. We also have Quantum Girl Theory by Erin Kate Ryan. This is part detective novel and part ghost story, but at its core, it looks at what happens when a teenage girl goes missing. It's Quantum Girl Theory by Erin Kate Ryan. Next up is Like a Sister by Kelly Garrett. This is about a black reality TV star who is found dead. And nobody seems to be particularly disturbed by this, except for her estranged half-sister. And her half-sister is unwilling to believe the kind of official narrative that the police are putting forward, so she decides to investigate on her own. This is Like a Sister by Kelly Garrett. We also have Hideout. This is Alice Vega, number three, by Louisa Luna. Um, Luna wrote Two Girls Down, I think it's called. Um, and it, it was the story of Alice Vega, who is very, very good at finding missing people. She teams up with a kind of outcast police officer. And I have to be honest and say that I have not read this series, so I'm not caught up with it, but it's one that I've heard a great deal about. 
Um, so the third one is Hideout, Alice Vega, book three, by Louisa Luna. And we have The Whispers by Heidi Perks. I love, love, love Heidi Perks. Um, she was, I think, first pretty much known only in Britain, but in the past several years, a couple of her books have come over here, and I am very happy that they have. This one is about a woman whose best friend has gone missing, and she's pretty sure that it's not an accident. But anyone that she talks to about it seems to have different ideas of what happened. And so she's trying to piece all these together and figure out what actually happened to her friend. This is The Whispers by Heidi Perks. And lastly, I have the latest novel by Lorith Ann White. This is The Patient's Secret. Um, this is a standalone, which I believe White is best known for. Um, she writes some really creepy romantic suspense. Um, she also wrote a three-book kind of detective series featuring um, Cop, who eventually became a PI, Ali, um, Angie Pallarino. But this is a standalone kind of domestic thriller with romantic elements, and I have really enjoyed everything I've read by Laura Thann White. Um, she sets her stories in Canada and just does an amazing job of bringing all of the elements to life. So this one is The Patient's Secret, and it's by Laureth Ann White. And that is all I have for you for this week. There are many more books out, but of course I cannot tell you about them all. Um, I hope that you are reading lots of great things. I hope you are staying safe and well. And I will be back to talk with you about more new books before too long. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.